Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we specialize in helping clinicians apply a person-centered approach to their practice. We offer courses and mentoring, and it's all on our website, tkex.org. And you can also join our private Facebook group for more. Today, we have a special episode with Ellen Masson and Ben Slade, two clinicians I personally look up to, and I've had the huge pleasure of hosting on previous episodes, so highly recommend checking those out. Um, we talk a lot about reflective practice, so my intention for today's conversation will be to look back, to share some of our mistakes and the lessons that we've learned from them, our current challenges, and hopefully offer some advice for listeners in private practice looking to apply person-centered care. So Ben and Ellen, really appreciate you spending your time with me. Again, you're stuck with me for the next bit of time. I'm sorry. That's you. I did I did try and get out of this. I want the record to state, but unfortunately. <laughs> I felt like I had no choice. <laughs> I so know. With, with the coercion in mind, um, if we start off with a reflection that each of you have had since our last chat, so since the listeners have, have heard from you. Um, it's been a few months for each of you. I'll start with you, Ben, um, since since our last chat. What, something that's come to mind it, either from that chat or something that comes to mind with regards to clinical practice since then? Something that comes to mind from the chat is it's bloody hard to do podcasts. It's exhausting trying to be on all the time and say all the right things. Oh, that took it out of me just doing that one episode. So I don't know how Dan or Ellen handles it all the time with the sheer amount of content they're able to put out. Um, but yeah, I did enjoy my time. It was terrifying. I, I've only actually just listened to it back this morning. That's the first time I've actually heard myself on that podcast. I um, primarily listen to it just to make sure that I don't double up and ramble on about the same points that I did last time. So stop me at any point if I'm getting a bit off topic. Oh, good. The, um, so basically I've ticked my goal of getting you guys to actually listen back. And it's a common experience because I don't really listen back to my own podcast either. There's like a sense of embarrassment hearing your voice and being like, oh, I'm, I fucked up that bit, made a mistake there. Uh, I actually meant this thing instead of that thing, or I forgot to mention A, B, C, D. Um, and Ellen as well, Into the Red Zone, fellow podcast host. Um, have you shared a similar experience with podcasts? I'm curious. Uh, it's, I'll, I'll share a double experience. Tate refuses to listen to any content involving his own voice. Refuses. He's never listened to one episode of Into the Red Zone. That motherfucker. Sorry, I don't know if I'm like. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're allowed to. <laughs> yes. um, so, yeah, we all know who does the editing. Um, that's fine. <laughs> we won't get into that. But I actually don't mind it at all. I lis I've listened to every episode of Into the Red Zone. I tend to listen to every um, episode of anything that I'm on. Uh, just because I think it's important to like to know what you said because you can forget and if you have people like reaching out to you and asking you questions about stuff you've got to actually know particularly if you are releasing like I know it's the case for me like I'm often releasing an episode like two months after I originally recorded it so I need to kind of listen to it again so I can make sure that I actually understood what I said and luckily or enough, and luckily enough, I'm not very judgmental on myself. 
I don't really take myself too seriously. So if I don't say something correctly or if I don't, you know, if I don't have the information that I wanted there, I'm just like, oh, whatever, it's fine. <laughs> it's cool. Cool. Did, was there a change? Did, did you find experience with podcasts and also hosting to to lead to that? Like what, what led to you know, your ability to um, listen back and, and not not judge yourself? Or was that from the start that you were like, no, nah, it's all good, um, I'm going <clears> to <throat> listen? Well, I think it helped like so I'll give two examples maybe um doing the podcast with Tate was really cool because we were never trying to make it a serious thing we were just like this is just our time for like shits and giggles so it was never meant to be like super serious in of itself I do shit the bed when someone asks me to go on a different podcast this is slightly different because I know you and and you're my friend so I feel safe being here but if anyone someone i don't know I just like completely yeah I lose it completely so yeah that that is the exceptional circumstance <laughs> yeah it does help when you know the other person beforehand rather than like meeting yeah. them for the first time and also having the conversation recorded and knowing that other people will listen to it yeah it can be quite yes. daunting and and then <laughs> from your experience and and also like for listeners who've never had the opportunity to be on a podcast what, what would you say might have been um, and also with your listening back to it recently, what what was the the main benefit from yourself as as a guest? Because I imagine it was um, quite an experience to to be a guest, first podcast, I believe, for you as well. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. I I really love the experience. I got a lot out of it. I think it's fun just being able to share my perspective of what private practice has been like think it would resonate with a lot of people so if listening to my story is at all helpful to a, a bunch of young clinicians then that would be really cool um also I like that I was able to make a start on a podcast because often the perfectionism in me you know wants to have it done and dusted complete to the best of my ability from the get-go and that's just not how progress is made um so I'm a lot more comfortable this time around on the podcast, having one under my belt, kind of knowing what to expect and yeah, feeling a little more at ease about it, which is, I'm hoping what Ellen's feeling. I hope this, yeah. I hope that's what she was talking about before. Yeah, that's cool. There's um a growing number of podcasts being released now. There's even a, a couple with students, EP students, and I think a few with physio students now. So I think it's a opportunity to bring our voices out there and 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 um I, I guess also have that I don't want to say forced I'll say it forced reflection I think is is helpful um and there's so much that people can take away and resonate with and I know from feedback from our previous podcast that that was the case um I want to move on to to looking back now with clinical practice and with all the hindsight bias so turning back time to first year new grad year what mistakes come to mind and the reason I say mistakes is because of the second part of the question what did you learn looking back now from those mistakes and um, I'll start with you Ellen and then Ben sure <laughs> um I think we need a little like set the scene uh 2018 was working in a commercial gym um thought I had 
discovered like so many really cool things. So I thought I was really top shit at the time. I was like, oh, like I understand pain science. Like I'm just like, I just get it on like a different level. Like people just don't understand, obviously. And also like um, I was going through my own, you know, ED recovery at the time. And it's interesting, like because I was going through recovery, I was becoming very um, not like, I wouldn't even call it weight neutral, but I was working in a space where I didn't really want people pursuing weight loss and everyone was pursuing weight loss because um, <laughs> it was a commercial gym setting. Um, and I kind of share these two things because I feel, while it's a very common thing, I feel like it's still very important to talk about. I definitely was still very stuck in the in the fixer mindset, even though I didn't really realise it. I was very much like, I need to change people's beliefs. Like if they, you know, if I just show them that they don't need to lose weight, it'll be fine. Or if I, I just like show them like this diagram of a mountain, then they'll understand that the pain is like, not not real but like kind of was kind of my stance at the time which was really bad um and I I look back at that now and I just go gosh like I guess what I learned from that time period is that I wasn't being helpful is kind of what sticks out to me like I definitely still would have helped people but there were I was definitely had a big bias to the people who got it for me where they were like oh yeah like they got it and it's everyone else's fault that they aren't getting it and I realized that my approach was the problem not the people who weren't getting it um if that if you if you're with me yes absolutely so it's if things didn't work it was because the other person Their just fault. didn't understand. Yes. Yeah. 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 Or they just didn't yeah. get it. They didn't. They yeah. didn't um, quite grasp the concept. It was kind of their, their responsibility to to yes like, you understand those twin peaks, for instance. Yes, and I had no concept at the time of the factors that would go into why people can't do that. Why people can't just be shown a thing and that like erases all of their lived experience and. I just really, I think it just really comes down to me still feeling, even though I felt like I wasn't a prescriber, I wasn't really resonating with that kind of category or thinking at the time. I look back at it with hindsight, as you said, and I'm like, I was definitely a prescriber. It was just in a different different way than what traditionally is seen. I just hadn't fully broken out of the mindset yet. Yeah, super interesting. Uh, the the idea, and I, I I share the experience of going from like tight muscles or weak muscles to then pain neuroscience education, and it was still the yeah. same process of like reducing pain or like fixing their understanding or or correcting their beliefs. Um, and mm-hmm. and Ben, you've been nodding the whole time. Do, do you resonate with this? And also, can can you hear some of your oh, reflections on the first? Year? Yeah. I literally thought you were reading off of my notes just then, Ellen, because that whole entire story is like spot on, pretty much word for word, how I would practice as well. So much about, yeah, finding what's wrong, whether that is, you know, the tight muscle, the weak muscle, or their belief on pain and just being like, yeah, I can fix this. 
I'm going to be the change in that person and I can transform their world. And if they don't get it, then they're not paying attention. Um, I, I have a couple other examples as well that, of mistakes of mine, but just touching on that one just there, which I share with Ellen, I don't think it was until I realized that the reason why pain science resonated so much for me was that I learned it at uni when I was really engaged and focused and thirsty for knowledge on that topic. The average client that comes through the door doesn't give a shit. They are sore. They want to be out of pain. They don't care about the analogies like I cared about the analogies. And so absolutely, it was all falling on deaf ears and I thought they were the issue. But mm. it was me. So, yeah, I feel you there. Yeah. Um, to go for the next mistake of mine, I was going to say one of the biggest changes that I've made to my practice is how I respond to pain in the clinic. And previously, when I first graduated, I found that I was, I realized halfway through that I was being very pain avoided with my clients. And similar to what you were saying, Ellen, I found that I just wasn't being helpful. Even though I had the right intentions, I don't think it was actually an effective way of interacting with people. And I think they actually left with the wrong message. Um, for example, we'll take the classic example of someone with back pain trying to do a deadlift. And it's a little bit sore. And I would go immediately, well, let's change that then you're in pain when you're exercising oh that's that's not a good thing we need to modify it maybe we'll try a different exercise maybe we'll try a lighter load maybe we'll try a different grip but as soon as pain popped up my reaction was that's not a good thing let's do something different so that you're not in pain anymore and of course the message that they took away was pain is bad i shouldn't feel pain at any point in time even when i'm deadlifting even outside of the clinic when i'm no longer with ben it's still a bad thing to have pain because that trusted clinician is telling me, oh, you're in pain. We need to make a change. Yeah. And I think automatic, just symptom modification, even though maybe yeah. it wasn't always explicit of like, you need to modify it like verbally explicit, but the, the, the way, uh, and I resonate with this, that's why I'm, I'm bringing this up. That I would do very similar. Um, with, and they would leave with the idea that pain is to be avoided. Yes. Absolutely. Um, and of course, I think my mind started to shift a lot when, you know, research was coming out that, you know, oh, up to four out of 10 pain is fine for certain protocols for certain exercise rehabs. Um, and then you'd get, you know, a persistent, a person with persistent pain and their resting baseline is six out of 10. And so I go, oh, well, how do I start rehab with this person if they're in pain all the time? The research says we can only progress if it's, you know, less than four out of 10. How do I get them to that point if they're not allowed to do anything because they're a six out of 10? So starting to learn that if it's no pain, if it's a little bit of a pain, it's not really my rule that I need to pay attention to. It's the, the person in front of me. Of course, making sure that it's going to be safe for them. If they've broken a leg and they're, they've got a healing fracture, let's not hop on it, of course. That's going to be sore and unsafe. Um, but if you know that it's going to be safe for someone, maybe allow them to have their own barriers with what they're willing to push into. Yes. I think it's so common to latch on to a rule, and that's generally how we're assessed and taught. So having like the kind of guidelines and frameworks, 
and I, I'm, I'm thinking I'm no expert and not experienced in the ED eating disorder space. Ellen, I know that there's like, there's a safe frameworks, but it's, 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 it's so individualized and it can be so uh, dependent on the person. So I think as new grads, it's so common and normal to have rules. We want some structure um, to, to base our interactions off. So we're not just, you know, on the, yeah, for sure. the deep end. Um, and just to touch on from like these reflections, uh, what what did you learn or what helped you like progress or update um, from um, these mistakes? Can I jump in? Yes, please. Um, this is like, a, like I'm going to answer a question, but I'm also going to semi-tangent for a second because um, we got a we got a tangent. Um, I think that just on what you're what just to pick up a bit on what Ben was saying about how we had the strict rules, but then started to realize that people don't fit into rule boxes. I don't know if this is a controversial opinion. I don't think that uh, guideline-based care is possible most of the time. Um, and I think that learning that was a really important step in my work as a professional, because I think that sometimes guideline-based care is either unrealistic or um, doesn't actually meet a lot of the individual requirements or needs of a person um, and it actually actually realizing that basically all the rules that I uh, were taught were dumb and stupid actually allowed me I don't they're not all dumb and stupid but they're just unrealistic a lot of the time um, allowed me to actually be more person-centered letting go of the guidelines letting go of the rules I could actually sit with someone and actually figure out well what is actually what is possible for you, like based on where you're at. And I think that that was something that was really important for me. Yeah, to contextualize it to the individual and then move yes. away from that rigidity of, of guidelines. And it's like, how many, sorry, just, I'm, I'm sorry, Dan, I'm going on a rant now. How many people, if you showed the National Health-Based Guidelines for Exercise to, would be fucking defeated? Like they would just be like, what is the point in even starting? But some people's policy is to be like, this is what you should be doing when they're not doing anything. And uh, most people can't do that anyway. Like if anyone, most people can't. I don't know how many, do any of us meet guideline-based exercise? I don't, I don't think. I yeah, think, not for I don't cardio. Think I do. That's for sure. Not for running. Yeah, for cardio, so, hell no. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that's all I'm saying. I'm yeah. done now. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, almost so like the, the guidelines need to come with a little saying beforehand that says, in a perfect world, everyone should be doing this. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it takes that. Um, again, I, th I think it's the, the, the latching onto the rigidity of the, the guidelines as, as this is the set framework and you have to then fit people into that framework where instead, if we're appreciating the human, the person, we're able to contextualize it and, and take from the guidelines what's relevant to their context i think that's 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 a hard step as well and i think it's not often taught either so ben i'm curious with the, what we've mentioned so far um lessons that you've learned reflecting back on your mistakes uh the big lesson from that mistake that i was referring to before is that how i interact with a person is sometimes as important as the narratives that I'm trying to shove down their throat. Um, the context that I create within a consult is really important. And 
paying attention to even just my nonverbal language, how I respond to them, how I listen to them, that's just as powerful as trying to educate someone or, yeah, trying to get them to change their beliefs or give them a different perspective. Yeah, and I can link that to the context, the environment that we're in. And Ellen, you mentioned you were in a commercial gym trying to apply a weight-neutral approach. I don't think the best of the best of the best of the best clinicians in the world could like do that if in, in that kind of setting no matter how skilled we are in communication skills and knowledge and, and and all and even like reputation it's hard when the whole context is shaping our interaction um so yeah that, that's a great one then the the part of our treatment the effects and the outcomes comes to how we uh, shape our context and interact just as much as what we actually say. Um, so, at, so now going a little bit forward in time, if we look at some of the current experiences um, and, and I'll, I'll just go straight to challenges if, if you guys don't mind. What are some of the current challenges from what you know now? I'll start um, with you, Ellen, yeah. Uh, no, being emotionally fucked. <laughs> I'm sorry, is that too honest? Tell us more. Don't, I, I had something be, similar, Ellen. Don't don't get into the caring industry if you actually care. <laughs> yeah. It will fuck you up. <laughs> I, I had something similar written down. I wrote taking work home with you. And I don't mean like the notes or anything, but like feeling yeah. the effect of someone's suffering when you go home. Yeah. That's a yeah. that's a tough one. Hundred percent. I'm like I wrote empathy fatigue compassion fatigue burnout triggering my own trauma fucking i've spent 20 million dollars on therapy <laughs> all of the money that i make at work just goes to therapy now because of my own life and also because of like <laughs> so yeah it's it's yeah it's fun <laughs> there's um uh, just had a, a few podcasts with people who've done work with within this more of the sociological uh fields and the the biggest concept that i've taken so far is emotional labor is load and it's not recognized as much and there's a historical context um to this with the kind of objectifying as clinician treating body as machine and the higher up the biomedical hierarchy you go the more objective you get so then the lower you go, that's where carers are. So this idea of care and emotional load, I think is, um, it needs to be highlighted. And I appreciate you being so open, Ellen, about the difficulties and also you, Ben, that it's it's tough. Yeah. And I think if, if I was hearing this podcast as a new grad, I'd be like, damn, yeah, it is tough. I didn't realize yeah. how tough it was because no one talks about it. I think it's not really acknowledged. No, I think that it's really messed up um, that university, I think there's many things that I would, you know, if I was making my ideal university degree, I would put in, but not preparing you for the emotional toll of working with people is really, really difficult. And it can be a mixture of things. You could be someone who, you know, has a, God forbid, like, well, like two examples, like you could, 
be really messed up because you're seeing a lot of complex clients or you just have a huge caseload, even though people are like, don't have too much stuff going on. You're seeing like a hundred people in a week. And that's like, I heard a story recently. Someone told me that they see a hundred people in a week. And I was like, like, so not hundred people in a week, a hundred people on their caseload. And I was like, excuse me. <laughs> I don't know. Like I, I think that there's not enough done to prepare you for, and then you're left alone having to try and sort of figure out how to look after yourself. And unfortunately, I think because we're all in the helping profession and I do believe that we get into this, everyone gets into this profession because they actually care because we care, we internalize. So any issues that we have, we blame ourselves for. I'm the problem. I'm not good enough. I'm a failure. It's never an issue with the system. It's never an issue with how things are run or the preparation that we're given to go into this industry. Amazing. That, and Ben, I think you we're also nodding there. I, I was just like, um, yeah, big I was shaking my head, not in disagreement, but in like, fuck, yeah, there's a lot that um, would have been nice to have at least prepared or, or had some time awareness of um, the, the invisible labor within our role as healthcare providers. Then mm. I'm curious on, yeah. on, on your thoughts on what we've talked about and also your, your challenges in, in, in your setting as well. Um, definitely the one Ellen mentioned. Yeah. Emotional fatigue. Um, the fatigues, all the fatigues that she mentioned feel that all the time. Um, I guess I'm privileged enough not to be currently dealing with my own mental health crises. So I don't know how someone would handle it like you, Alan. So well done. That's, that's awesome. Um, I think again, is just testament to how good of a clinician you are that you can be going through that feeling affected by it, but then still be so passionate in your field as well and wanting to show up and wanting to still care for people. That's, that's pretty cool. I really like that. Definitely aspire oh, to be ben. like you. That's so, that's really lovely of you to say. Um, which probably leads into one of my biggest uh, challenges. It's just the imposter syndrome, the uncertainty all the time that I'm, I'm not doing a good enough job or that I'm not, yeah, very effective in what I do. And I suppose, yeah, taking a look back and realising that I'm not solely responsible for every outcome in my caseload, I... I'm somewhat responsible for their health, but I don't think I'm the only impact to what they're going through. So reminding myself of that every now and then, I think is a bit important. Yeah, that story that our mind says of, I'm not good enough, I don't know enough. Um, so I, I can relate to that wholeheartedly where I was, um, I guess using courses to fill in that gap and fill in the uh, uncertainty and the insecurity um, and within a workplace context, there's also a sense of, I, I need to be valued. I need, and people are paying money to see me and there's a sense of the, where is my value? Like wh what is of value to people and it's skills and it's tools and it's, you know, knowledge and expertise. So I, I was doing my very best to fill in that cup, but not acknowledging that there's still the same story of I'm not good enough showing up does, does that resonate and either or 
can jump in or tell me I'm wrong as well. Yeah, Dan, no, you're wrong. Yeah, and thanks. you're annoying. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you just wanted to say that <laughs> since the start, didn't you? I, I did, yeah. <laughs> no one's going to understand why, but that's fine. <laughs> um, but no, I do resonate with that a lot. I think that... um. I think that unfortunately it kind of links back to what I was saying before where it's like we're left with no choice but to try and fill in these gaps ourselves because there's no support given to us. We're one of the only industries in the caring profession, like in allied health, that doesn't have mandatory supervision. Um, And I just feel like that is such a missed opportunity because I just feel like if I had the guidance of someone who'd even just been in the industry like you know a lot like longer than I had it would have helped with so many things even if our values didn't fully align like it would have just given me validation around certain areas and topics so yeah that is one of the the topics that uh I think we touched on as well that supervision is mandatory in counselors psychotherapists and social workers I think in some OTs dietetics yep yeah. And somehow in pain, especially when it comes to a complex human sensory and emotional experience and all the kind of challenges that we've talked about with compassion and empathy fatigue, um, we often don't have neither the theories, the frameworks, the support networks, the context, the mentor supervision, like, you know, colleagues and personnel, they're, they're like we're just you know, deal with it. Uh, how have, I'm, I'm curious, because uh, there's two EPs in, in this virtual room, Ben, you're the odd one out. So within maybe as a physiotherapist, what have you experienced and, and heard of maybe even amongst colleagues in, in your private practice settings? Because I know there's a, like, for instance, expectations of certain services that can also be added to that load and burden. So what's it like um, with... It sounds like it'd be a very similar scenario to you guys. There's not often a lot of talk going on about how emotionally draining it can be. I think physios are often, you know, told that, yes, you're going to be supervised when you come join our clinic. If you're a new grad, come work for us because we give so much personal development and we'll talk through cases. And almost always it's education on how can we best treat this person what's the best intervention and how do you apply this manual therapy and mm-hmm. have you considered dry needling have you considered mckenzie have you considered all these other things but no one's really just sitting there and just going hey how how are you how are you doing how are you processing things how do you feel coming out of that really tough consult um it's not something that's really openly spoken about all that much yep uh, ellen has anyone or, or have you heard like colleagues um embrace and acknowledge and talk about emotions from your experiences or even third hand because I, I'm we're both based in Sydney I'm trying to think now and I, I can't really uh, think of a place that like, explicitly, are we talking, like it addresses are we talk, it yeah uh, like as in like a business owner yep even a, as having employee, a space as, yep yep yeah I don't I don't I don't think so because you've got to think right <laughs> Is this when I go political? Probably. Um, but I just feel like, you know, to a, to a, any business, you you are your labour. 
And that is all that is of value to them because that's what makes them money. So as long as you are doing your labor, um, then they don't really care. It's not in their benefit. Like they don't really view it as being in their benefit to invest or explore because it's like you're doing the the thing that I pay you for and that's all I care about, um, unfortunately. Like I do feel like, you know, in ethical business, like it would be an investment to take that time and be able to grow someone like that and then like then have them as like being like a, long-term part of your business instead of just burning out and getting a new grad every two years (laughs) um but yeah it's it's sad to see and it's sad it's sad also actually not sad but it's hard working in an industry where you are your labor because if you need time off or you need to like look after yourself or you can't manage like a a crazy caseload that's less money you know, or you need to charge more money and less people can access your service. So it's just, it's difficult. Yep. And if anyone thinks that there's one answer that's simple, uh, message me, let me know. Because I think <laughs> like, we're touching on some of the structures that influence our practice and some of the, the underlying systems within neoliberal capitalist society, within our healthcare political system, how healthcare policies, for instance, influence who can and who can't access our services in the first place. And all these things that like, I don't know about you both, but we never touched on in EP undergrad. And that's another Mm -hmm. thing. I think that's a helpful um, perspective to expand on all these things happening around with the social determinants of healthcare Mm -hmm. that can influence our practice. I think it's better to know them than ignore them or not know them because then we go back to the individualistic lens of I'm not good enough and it's my fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Got to zoom out so you can see the proper picture. The full picture. I think so. So my idea is then if we look at some helpful starting points and even like with hindsight bias, what we wish we had, um, maybe not creating a whole degree, that'll take a bit too long. We'll need a whole podcast. <laughs> but um, what are some, what, what maybe helped each of you so far, what were some of the, the helpful um, frameworks, directions, communities that helped, whether that's knowledge or, or, or people or contexts um, that helped you? Oh, we'll start there. So I'll ask Ben. You have a more confused face. So I'll ask you first. <laughs> ah, thank you. That's a, yeah, easy way for me to answer. Um, I think what helped me the most was first of all connecting with people that were feeling the same i think knowing that it's not just you going through that is incredibly validating and you don't feel so shitty all the time because you're so isolated you go oh everyone else is feeling the same thing so um definitely groups on facebook i think is the the one that sticks out in mind i think even just the knowledge exchange group or the the daniel arbilla group i think was a a really cool one with a bunch of like-minded people who also would speak about the challenges of private practice um and in sharing that group with other physios across adelaide and saying hey check this out what do you think you know you'd catch up with beers with those people and work out they're all going through the same sort of struggles being able to share that and empathize with others in your position is yeah a really good starting point yeah connecting with people and finding out 
oh, I'm not the only one who has imposter syndrome. And oh, everyone has imposter syndrome. Oh, but these people know stuff and they're like experienced and they also have imposter syndrome. I think that makes us feel less alone. Less abnormal, less like I don't belong in this profession. That's huge. That's everything. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and it's nice to hear that the online community has that. Uh, there's the, the option to connect on a deeper level and to meet up in person for beers. And um, yeah, so so for anyone in Adelaide, Ben's shout, is that, can we claim that? Oh, absolutely. I would love to have beers with more like-minded practitioners. And Ellen, I'm, I'm curious for, for you, looking back, what what helped you through this process so far and, and um, helpful starting points as well, maybe for other clinicians who are also feeling that the fatigue? Oh, um, that is difficult. I think that I, I don't want to just like copy Ben. <laughs> Come on, I want um, to yeah, we could all copy Ben. Um, that would be no, terrible. No. <laughs> There's I too actually, much for me already. <laughs> um, I don't want to like get. I don't want to boost your ego too much, Dan. Um, because I've already said that I find you extremely annoying. <laughs> but I, I actually didn't know any EPs before I met you. And uh, or any any EPs at least who shared my values. As I said, like I was working in a commercial gym setting, I was the only person like me that I knew, and I didn't even know. Like this is where I was at. I didn't know that there was anyone else. Like I was just like that isolated, um, and I didn't I didn't know that like size inclusivity was a thing. I didn't know haze was a thing. I didn't know that like I don't know any of this shit existed. I was just trying to do my thing. And then I met I, when I met Dan and him being like the connoisseur of like community, <laughs> being like, there are all of these people. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> and then just that by itself was enough to I don't know, like to push me forward. I don't actually think I would be here without the community that you've created. Yes. Don't shake your head. Just accept the compliment. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been, it's been amazing to have that. And through that, um, you know, be able to find supervision as well. And like, cause everyone's connected once I feel like it's so weird. Once you've got your foot in the door, I feel like you can find everyone, but not being in the door, you can't find anyone. You're completely isolated. Um, and that was kind of my experience. So maybe maybe the advice would be like, if you are feeling really alone, um, you're probably not the only one who thinks the way you do. So um, you've just got to got to find the door. I think that's, uh, I relate so much that if it wasn't for meeting people like both of you, I think I would have uh, probably burnt out and done something else, maybe go back to DJing or something, because it's just not worth it if you're isolated and you don't have the support and you feel alone. So I'm thinking, so we've got reaching out to people as a helpful step. Um, ben, advice for new grads or even like looking back, advice that you would give to yourself back in first year out? some helpful steps um 
stay engaged, stay passionate. If anyone is listening to this podcast and they're clearly taking an interest in their own career, and if you're doing that, then you're already a much better clinician than a lot of others that I know. So stay in the profession, please, because we need more clinicians like you. Um, I think one helpful bit of advice, which I don't think I can speak much to, but I think Ella might be able to, is seek help, seek therapy. If it's not a like-minded practitioner, go see someone that's really good at listening and really good at helping. Seeking support. I think um, this idea that we should know it or we can do it all ourselves. I, I'm not sure if that's a cultural idea or like um, it's kind of pushed to towards us through the way that we're assessed. Like we should know what to do. We just like search something out, find out and, and do the work. I think it, it can leave us even more isolated in the long term. So knowing that no one can do this alone is important. And Ellen, anything to add from what you've mentioned so far? So my takeaway is like message people on Instagram that post some good shit like you did back in yeah. 2019 or whatever it was. Yeah. It was you. You reached out to me actually, but yes. <laughs> um, yeah. I I think that the thing that comes to mind for me actually goes back to like some of the thoughts and feelings you're like I'm currently having and I'm actually currently working through, which is the concept of doing less and it's okay to do less. It's okay to see less clients. It's okay to have a lighter caseload. Like if you notice, work out what your capacity line actually is. If you're noticing that you have, you know, a bunch of fatigue, empathy, compassion, like all of yourself you know, all over the place, your workload's probably not helping contain you. So you should try and figure out what the right amount is. And that looks different for everyone. Um, I don't mind sharing, like for me, I can't doing more than 20 sessions a week. It's fuck, it just fucks me. Like that's my line. And some people could do double what I can do, but I can't. Um, and I just kind of want to say that it's okay to do less and you're not less worthy. You're not less good. You're not less helpful if you can't help more people. Yeah. The idea, I think that the more people you see, if, if you can cram in back to back, sessions 20 minutes each and this is uh, even in msk like private practice settings with pain i think number one you'd be kidding yourself if you think that that's enough time to properly listen and engage and collaborate number two i would look for feedback and and look at like because I, I i would just be a robot I would have to dissociate just to manage that workload. Um, and that's, it's just drilled into us that that's, that's success. If we can see more people in less time and be really efficient. Is there anything else respecting time? Maybe one, one take home that you'd like if, and I think Ben, I wanted to expand on your point that if, if you're listening now as a clinician, you are already in the top like 5% of all clinicians. So shout out to our two listeners right now. Um, one maybe one take home that you'd like to leave listeners with then and we'll wrap up and i'll ask you as well i suppose the biggest message would be stay connected and if you're not yet connected reach out it's scary but as alan said once your foot is in the door there's a whole world of people that are feeling the same and it's really really beneficial to be a part of a community like that so 
if you are listening and you don't yet have a foot in the door, let me put my foot in the door and say, hey, please message me, find me on Instagram, reach out. I'd love to have a chat with you. If you're Adelaide-based, let's have a coffee or a beer. Awesome. Ben Slade 10 Instagram handle, is that? Is that... That's the one, yeah. Respect, respect. And Ellen, one take home? Um, I don't think I can beat that. So I'm just going to be like, yep, I've got my foot in the door too. Uh, if you want to reach out, um, if you don't feel connected, particularly if you're curious about the science inclusive space and you don't know anyone in it, um, please reach out. Um, you can find me at ellen.mass underscore EP. And yes, if you're Sydney based, let's get coffee yeah. or food or something. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's awesome. The community is growing as well. So also putting my hand up, do reach out and keep the connections. I think that's that's needed for longevity. So thank you both for sharing, for being courageous and acknowledging a lot of the invisible things that we often don't talk about as clinicians. And uh, selfishly, it's, it's amazing just to have you both um, and speak to you both personally for myself. So thank you both. Until the next time. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure.